This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. 80 Proof Politics is brought to you by Big Wig Media, part of the Evergreen Podcast family. You can find this and other fascinating podcasts from our nation's capital at bigwigpodcast.com. Banking is a very personal business, right? And whether it's at the corporate level or the retail level. And, and, for, and for that reason, banking has always been a difficult business from a reputational standpoint because you, you're, you're, you're dealing with something that's very real and tangible to people. And if things don't go correctly, uh, people feel it immediately. On any given day in Washington, D.C., policy proposals are created, debated, and decimated by tens of thousands of policy advocates working behind the scenes. Each week, one of these advocates and I will visit one of D.C.'s many watering holes and distill the art of advocacy. We'll pull back the curtain a bit and take a look at how they play their part in this sausage factory we call our federal government. So if you're at all interested in how the sausage is made, pull up a chair, grab a drink, and join us for the next 20 minutes or so. After all, what goes better with sausage than a tall, cold one? You know, for generations, if you wanted to do your banking in Washington, D.C., there was only one place that you would put your money. Riggs National Bank started in 1836 and quickly became one of the largest banks in the country, certainly the largest in D.C. Literally from Martin Van Buren to Richard Nixon, 23 presidents had accounts here at Riggs National Bank, and it didn't stop at presidents, senators, diplomats, everyone from suffragettes to generals did their banking business at Riggs, and they became so popular and so big that in 1891, they built a gorgeous headquarters at 9th and F right across from the National Port what is now the National Portrait Gallery. Unfortunately, the bank shut down in the early 2000s. But like many great pieces of architecture, the building itself has been revived. It is a beautiful luxury hotel. In fact, Travel and Leisure a couple years ago listed it as the number one luxury hotel in DC, number four in the country, and 31st in the entire world. And I can see why. It's an absolutely beautiful old setting. And we're in what is their cafe, which used to be the bank lobby. It's got these marble Corinthian columns, the high ceiling. It's just, it's got a beautiful appeal to it. But one of the more fascinating things about the rebuild here is they took the old bank vault and they turned it into a small bar, which is such a wonderful experience and can be rented out for private events. So if you're ever looking for a little place to have an extravagant outing or you're looking for a great place to stay that's really in the heart of D.C., I'd recommend the Riggs Hotel. The reason that we're in Cafe Riggs today 
is because my guest is a dear old friend, Kevin Frommer. Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here, Bill. It's great to have you. And the reason why I say it's appropriate is because Kevin is the president and CEO of Financial Services Forum. Well, I just want to start with that, Kevin. Tell everybody what the forum is, what it's about, and what the mission statement is. Uh, Bill, thanks for having me. Uh, The forum is uh, an industry association that represents the eight largest banks in the United States, uh, which include um, Bank of America, Bank of New York Mellon, City, Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan State, Morgan Stanley, State Street, and Wells Fargo. Uh, They're large institutions uh, for the large economy that we have. Uh, they are also known as global systemically important banks. There are I wanted 30, to ask you about that term because I wasn't familiar with it until well, we were, well, I was we'll doing background. to put the, your audience to sleep. <laughs> but the GSIBs, as they are known, are institutions around the world, 30 total, which are designated as large internationally active banks uh, whose activities are interconnected and significant from an economic standpoint. And the reason that they were designated was was an outgrowth of the global financial crisis, where we had very, very large institutions that became troubled in various different ways. And the, the global regulatory apparatus at the time determined that we needed to have a set of standards that apply to the largest, most significant banks in the world, including the United States, so that if, if an institution does become troubled, those headaches don't spread into the rest of the banking system and to the economy broadly. Each of these institutions here and around the world have a set of standards that they meet you know, because they're large, uh, because they're essential to the economy, and uh, because we want them to remain stable and resilient in good times and in bad. How long has the forum been in existence? So the forum started in in 2000, and at that time it was a group of large financial companies, not just banks. Okay. Uh, In 2017, the institutions that are U.S. at that point were U.S. GSIBs uh, decided to remake the forum, and the other institutions that were not banks were politely asked to take the work that they do and have it done with the other trade associations they belong to and use the form as the basis for advocacy for just the eight U.S. headquartered GSIPs. And so we focus on the things that are particular to them and work with the other trade associations who may be taking up cause on matters that are of broader interest to banks in the United States. It has to be somewhat of a challenge to representing such well-known and large institutions. I mean, you're dealing with Jamie Dimon, friends. Let's just put it on the table, right? They've got their own operations, and they're watching out for their own interests. And it's not uncommon for coalitions and trade associations to have to deal with the lowest common denominator amongst its members. But I would imagine it's got to be a little bit easier for you because this is a smaller number of membership to begin with and probably very like-minded in their approach to Washington. Starts off with having eight members, which is a benefit. They are very different in their business models and their priorities, actually. But the the types of rules and regulations and reputational issues that they face tend to, you know, bind them together. And we 
find that it's relatively easy to, to find common cause and approach on things that we think matter to them. Uh, but you're right. They are all well-established institutions in the United States, and therefore they have well-established Washington presence. And they use us to, uh, to you know, collectively speak for them on the things that matter. So we're no different than any other trade association in that respect. Uh, we are different in that we're almost boutique So I imagine you have an advocacy team working for you. What else? You have some economists? You have researchers? What, we have... Uh, what type of person works at financial services? So we have, um, we have communicators. We have a you know, pu- you know, public affairs team. We have a policy and research team. We have lobbyists who focus their activities on Capitol Hill. We internally and externally have resources that we use to develop our commentary on regulation because much of what applies to these very, very large banks is in the province of uh, a suite of agencies that have existed for quite some time. There's the Federal Reserve, uh, the Comptroller of the Currency, the uh, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the Consumer Protection Bureau, and their job is to oversee the activities of the institutions and their implementation of the regulatory requirements that have existed over time and changed very significantly over the last 15 years since, since the financial crisis. And when we talk about our advocacy, one of the things we did when we, when we started the forum back up is we went, we went back to basics, right? We looked at what do our institutions do on Main Street? What do they do in every state? What do they do in every congressional district for members of the banking committees on the House and Senate side? You know, where, where do we play with respect to lending to small business? Where do we play with respect to um, funding corporates and, and, and other types of businesses? And what does that mean? What little exposure I've had to the banking realm here in the federal arena there seems to be a lot more attention paid on the community banker. Well, how does the forum navigate that bridge between Wall Street and Main Street? So we have in this country about 4,700 banks, and then we have a bunch of credit unions as well. Uh, but just focusing on the banks, if you, think, if you think about the composition of the banking sector in the U.S., Stay with me, audience. <laughs> 4,700 institutions, most of them are community banks. Uh, and then you have a set of mid-sized banks and regional banks. And then you have our institutions, these eight institutions that have over $750 billion in assets. Mm. Because of the diversity of the banking activity inside the GSIBs, they perform a lot of services for the rest of the banking sector. Okay. They, they lend or help... Um, raise capital for other banks inside the system. You know, it is, a, it is in fact a system. There's a lot of benefit to having a big, diverse, fragmented banking system in the United States. But um, a lot of it, been a lot of changes in banking over the last uh, 30 years, uh, a lot of significant changes just in the last 12 to 15 years. And innovation is going to, you know, continue to uh, accelerate that, you know, that, uh, that type of change. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory 
Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, you've mentioned the financial crisis of 08, 09 a couple of times now, and I, and I know so much has changed, as you say, in the banking world since then. Uh, what are the policy issues you're facing right now? I mean, we're sitting here talking just a matter of weeks since SVB and Signature Bank came under trustee ownership, basically. Uh, what is the forum doing from a policy standpoint right now, either related to that or anything else that you're dealing with? The, the forum has been primarily focused on regulations that affect the structure of the institutions, you know, the imposition of new, new requirements through the Dodd-Frank Act, as well as a, a number of other changes that were just done by global regulators and U.S. regulators using their own authority that wasn't mandated by Congress. Uh, rules that require the institutions to be stress-tested every year, which means that the, uh, the regulator comes up with an economic scenario that's very severe, uh, more severe than, than the crisis from 15 years ago. And the banks have to take that economic overlay and apply it to their balance sheets and their activities. And the regulators look at what comes out on the other side of that. And based on that, you are assessed as to whether or not you have enough capital in your institution to absorb the losses that a lousy economy would impose on your bank and still be able to continue to do what you do without interruption. And... Nothing matters more than, a, than, a, than reputation when it comes to banking. People want to feel like they, they trust their banker, that their money is safe, that they're getting, they're getting good advice, you know, and that, and that they can and they can rely on their bank for, for their financial needs and to help them, you know, create their own strong personal economies. Yeah, I didn't come here intending to quote Ben Bernanke, but is anything too big to fail anymore? Well, that's that is a. Uh, it's a, a it's a theoretical and rhetorical <laughs> concept. Uh, I will say this: uh, so far, the reforms uh, that were put in place and the way the banks have implemented them have worked. And um, you just you, you just have to go back and look at how each of these firms performed during a crisis that was external to the banks, such as the pandemic, and what they did quickly. And uh, what the how the how the the government channeled fiscal assistance through the banks, you know, when the central bank engages in quantitative easing to the extent that it did, it it creates reserves that are held on the balance sheets of the banks, and uh, so there's a you know there's a a relationship between the private banking sector and the central bank. And the, and the Congress, because if you're giving out checks, it's going to it's going to typically run through the banks. If right. You do, if you're doing small business loans like the Payment Protection Plan, that all went through the banks. The banks could process that much faster, more efficiently, and securely than if the government had tried to stand up some kind of big grant making operation in the matter of weeks. Had no capacity to do that. So, so you know that. That small business assistance was a classic example of where the banks were able to re-gear and um, e- efficiently 
under under rules that were put together quite quickly assistance to small businesses all over the country millions of small businesses all over the country well you certainly come at this new position with a rich history of public policy work in town and certainly well qualified for what you're doing kevin let's talk about your path to glory a little bit here if we could before this, you were EVP and head of public affairs for HSBC North America. So you're on the ground with what a big institution requires in Washington, D.C. But I want to focus more on what you did before that. Because from 2005 to 2009, you were the Assistant Secretary of Legislative Affairs at the Treasury Department, which put you right on the front line of the 08-09 crisis. It wasn't entirely my fault. <laughs> No, but we probably wouldn't be where we are today if you hadn't been in the position. Take us to that moment back in, I think it was 2008, when the House rejected the administration's economic rescue plan, the $700 billion effort to get the economy righted again, and you're standing there in the Capitol finding out about this vote. Well, first of all, it's fair to say that what we were doing was unprecedented. We, and we talked about this as we were conceiving it. And one of the things that I observed to my colleagues at the Treasury Department was that you were asking the Congress to, uh, in a matter of a week or two, uh, provide a pretty broad authority uh, and money uh, that was you know, roughly equivalent to the entire annual appropriations uh, that are approved by Congress. So you think, you, think, you, you think about the spending for the Defense Department and all the other agencies, setting aside Social Security, Medicare, and that, you know, that, that, that stuff that goes on autopilot. But if you just look at what it costs to run the government every year, we were, we were asking the Congress to give us roughly the equivalent of that in a couple of weeks. Yeah, that's a great analogy. And, and, and the point being, that's a big leap of faith for members of Congress who usually spend a year or more going over the details of that kind of spending. So it was no small ask to, for the Congress to, to, to provide that money and to provide it, uh, it given the fact that it was going to be essentially transferred into the banking sector. So the day that the bill went down on the House floor was, was a deep, deep disappointment because we had spent a lot of time with members of the House and members of the Senate explaining why this was necessary in meetings with Republicans uh, on the House side and on the Senate side and on Democratic members on the House side and the Senate yeah. side and answering all their questions. I mean, we, set up, we set up a little you know, Treasury office in, in the uh, WHIPs, the House Republican WHIPs uh, uh, offices in the week or two going into this so that members of, members of Congress could come in and ask the people that were working at the Treasury on this stuff that, you know, why, is it, why does it need to happen? Why does it need to work this way? So we had a pretty extensive, quick but extensive effort of educating members of Congress as to why they were being asked to take this difficult vote. And essentially what happened was they didn't have the votes. Yeah. Uh, the Republicans and Democrats, you know, their whip operations didn't look each other in the eye, in my opinion, and say, we got this. And so it went down.
Was it mainly it was it mainly the price tag, or was there some substance? Well, I think it, it was everything. It was I think, I think it was less the price tag. I mean, it could have been two hundred billion, five hundred billion, one trillion. It was more about you know, do we all agree that we need to do this to save the banking system and to save the economy? And for whatever reason, there wasn't the alchemy you know, between the Republicans and Democrats necessary to push it over the line that day. And the stock market reacted to it very, very badly. And so I could see, as a matter of fact, on a television, the Dow dropping as the vote was going down. As oh, it was man. evident the vote was going down, the Dow was just sinking, sinking, sinking. And that was quickly translated into the sharp decline in the value of people who had 401ks, for example. Yeah. I mean, their four, the value of the 401ks yeah. dropped in a heartbeat like that. So we had to pick up the pieces, go back to the White House, uh, re-strategize, starting with the Senate, um, produce a bill that had a few extras um, that were unrelated really to the, you know, the, the um, bank assistance piece of it, process it over there and send it back over to the House. And, you know, it, t- it, it took, in fact, a little mini-crisis, if you will, uh, in the stock market to send the signal that this was very, very serious and we can't, we can't, you know, we, we have to act. We have to produce this. We have to provide this assistance right now. It had to be a fascinatingly it was. horrible time. It was a horrible time, and, it, and it's regretful that we had to do it. But the program itself worked. It, uh, it stabilized the banking system. Mm-hmm. And because these were investments in these institutions, the money came back to the government with interest. It more than paid for itself. Um, so the taxpayer did not suffer at all. The taxpayer actually, you know, from a, from a financial accounting standpoint, the, the program made money for the United States government. But at the time, at the time, it was... It was an extremely difficult thing for members of Congress to do, and some lost their re-election as well, a consequence. All the way up to John McCain. I also read that your experience at Treasury led to something very unique. You are a recipient of the Alexander Hamilton Award. Explain what that is. So every organization has ways of recognizing individuals who um, showed up every day and did their job and were loyal and the Alexander Hamilton Award is essentially the Treasury Department's um, you know version of that we all know who Alexander Hamilton was uh, and and he's a very meaningful figure for the for the Treasury Department uh, for reasons I don't need to explain but that award is a um, it you know it's a, a recognition of you know individuals who uh, were uh, Reasonably productive while they were. <laughs> you didn't see him wink, in, in, but he in, just in, did. Their, in their jobs, <laughs> whether they liked it or not. Uh, so it was a, it was an honor. It's, a, it's an honor to have it. Um, it'll never leave my resume. Yeah, of course, and, uh, uh, nor should it. And, but uh, did, was this awarded to you because of the work you did and the yes. recovery, yes. the the economic stimulus? Yes, uh, it was awarded to a good number of people because there were a good number of people who were involved in this, starting from the secretary all the way down. I mean, we, we, we had a number of individuals uh, at the Treasury Department who were longtime career servants mm-hmm. who performed very admirably 
uh, throughout the time that I was there, not just the global financial crisis, but you know, during Hurricane Katrina, which um, occurred within about 60 days of my arriving at the Treasury Department. And so um, it's, it's not just a recognition for people who come in and out as political appointees. It's, you know, it's really to recognize outstanding service throughout, you know, throughout the building, throughout the Treasury. And um, so, yeah, it's a, it, it was a, it was a, a welcome recognition. And, um, you know, after three and a half years, I, 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 some people like to burrow into government. There's a, you know, the expression burrowing in when you're yeah. political, you yeah. want to become a career and just stay in government for a while. I, I decided to burrow out. Uh, I, I, I think, I think I had, uh, I had, a, I had a fulsome experience, and it was time. Well, good for you, and congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, like most people at the top level of legislative affairs within the executive branch, you came at that job with a wealthy career in Congress, and I want to talk about the bookends of that, if I could. Starting with the last job you had before Treasury, you were policy advisor for the Speaker of the House. What is the day-to-day -day role of that person? Uh, in, in large part, it is providing for the speaker and in coordination with the other leadership offices a, a, an understanding of the work that's going on in the committees that you're assigned to. So I was assigned to the budget and the appropriation committees, and every year you produce a budget, and every year you produce a set of appropriation bills to fund the government. And there were sort of macro decisions that were made every year in terms of how much money is going to be spent on the, on the government every year. And people had lots of disagreements over what that number should be yep. and how much should go to guns and how much should go to butter. And so uh, at the leadership level, you're, 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 you sort of have a broad view of... Uh, decisions that need to be made, when they need to be made, when the legislative process is going to make good on those broad decisions, and coordinating uh, the work of the committees um, so that, you know, you can, so that the majority leader and the majority whip can uh, oversee committee work and the scheduling of legislation. And in our, in our case, each leadership office sort of had a bit of primacy with respect to certain matters so the speaker my speaker um, tended to take the lead on budget and appropriations and another member of the leadership sort of took the lead with respect to the ways and means committee in their and their jurisdiction broadly speaking uh, so it's it, it coordination of policy making sure that the leadership understood <clears throat> some of the decisions that are going to be made and the implications of the decisions and the differences that may exist within the conference the public, amongst the Republicans about uh, you know, how many feel strongly about going in this direction versus that direction and, and, and trying to you know, keep the conference together, if you will, aligned on the policies that uh, were, were you know, going to be embedded in the legislation that the leadership brings to the floor. So it's, um, it's much more art than science. Uh, there is science, um, and there's, and then there's a lot of collaboration and um, conflict mitigation. I'll say, uh, both inside, you know, the House 
and with respect to the Senate. And we, we had to coordinate the kinds of things that we were doing with what the Senate was doing or what the Senate told us they could do or not do. And Which is a lot easier when both majorities are the same party. It's very easy, and it's also easier when the president is of the same party. Because if, if you have a president who, and we did at the time, President Bush was a very certain individual. And uh, he had a good policy-making apparatus, uh, and he had a good White House ledge team. And they were, they were appropriately aggressive about pushing the... Um, priorities of the president. So it made it a lot easier if they had a point of view about what they wanted to get done. And we tended to try to satisfy um, their priorities to the maximum extent possible. That was the view of the speaker and the leaders. And so, um, and, 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 there may, and there were occasions where some of us didn't necessarily agree with what the White House felt was really, really important. But um, we subordinated that, obviously, yeah. to, uh, because, because, you know, in our speaker's view, what was good for the president of the United States was, you know, good for the House Republicans, and that was kind of the approach that we took. It's no surprise to me that you had budget and appropriations issues because that was the world you came from. You had worked for the chairman of appropriations, chief of staff for a while. You actually were a staffer on the committee and all that. But I started out like... Any other? That's you know, what I want to ask. Uh, any what other? Was you know, toe-haired, toe-headed kid. You know, coming in, answering mail, working my way up the chain in in the office that I was work, working uh, in with the uh, congressman who's still in Congress today. He's now dean of the house. His name is Hal Rogers from Kentucky, and he's a he's an excellent um, congressman. Has done an enormous amount of things for his state and his district, uh, and for the country. Uh, um, so yeah, worked up, worked into various roles within that office. Kind of left the personal office work to become as much of an expert as I could on the appropriations process and kind of understand the nuts and bolts of that. Uh, that's where I really cut my teeth <clears throat> in terms of how legislation's made and negotiated out with the Senate, and uh, and then returned as his chief of staff for a number of years before becoming uh, the speaker's policy advisor. So. I was fortunate. I got to do a lot of different things up there, and that was a, it was a good preparation for going into the administration. Was it easier to get things done in those days because of earmarks? Uh, there, there's no question in my mind that the Congress has, should have the discretion to spend money the way it wants, including on earmarks. And I think earmarks, uh, like well, Many other things, you know, that come and go in politics are the, they're the grease that makes the wheels turn more easily. And, um, and even though there was a lot of controversy over your marks, they represented a tiny, tiny bit of overall spending. Less so, than 1% of the budget. Yeah, right? so it was insignificant in that sense. Um, I do think we got carried away. I think we became much more focused on earmarks than we did about, uh, important decisions about how to how to spend the taxpayers money on certain types of programs um, so we became overly reliant on earmarks to get the job done so I think when there was when the brakes got hit on earmarks uh, even though that was a bit of anathema to members of the appropriations committee I think it was probably healthy um, in retrospect and I applaud them for going back to doing it and doing it in a measured, transparent way, because I think 
I just think it's it you know it's within the province of the Congress to to you know be responsible for spending the taxpayers' money. And and in, and the, and the flip side of it is, you're just handing it over to unelected. No, exactly. People in the in, in the administration who. Even even if they mean well, may not make the best choices. Yeah, and, I, and I'm having a hard time remembering which article in the Constitution permits that. Article but, uh, one, I believe. Yeah, it I think it's Congress, right? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, Kevin, you, like you said, have a very classic start to your public policy profession. If someone were to approach you straight out of college, wanting to have a similar career to yours, or maybe feels like they've run the thread on their time in Congress and they're looking for a transition. What kind of advice might you offer? Uh, well, first of all, try to have a point of view about what kind of work really motivates you. And then think, what do I want to do three or four years hence? You know, if I go into a position um, that looks interesting to me, what do I think I will be in a position to do four or five years after that? Which in these days... Uh, these days, I mean, that's like a lifetime True. for a lot of people. Uh, but I think whatever that whatever that time set is, be thinking about what you want to you know do next, and that's really hard to do when you're very young. Uh, but I think those are two principles. And then when you're in a role, and this is something I learned from someone I deeply respect, think broadly about your job. Think broadly about the role that you're playing. Um, stay in your lane, obviously, um, but if you can expand that lane, do that and look for mentors. People, people underestimate the value of mentorship. They, people can help you make decisions or see around corners or make you think about something in a different way or give you perspectives and feedback that you might not get from, from others. So... Um, I'm a big believer in all that stuff. Excellent advice. Kevin, it's been great catching up with you. It's been great having you as a guest on 80 Proof Politics. All the best, and I hope it's not so long before we see each other again, maybe even on the golf it's course. It's great to see you. Enjoyed it. And just remember, no matter what you think about the current state of politics in D.C., whether you think the glass is half empty or half full, there's plenty of room to fill your drink. Thanks for listening. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts.